0: Well, good morning. I must say what a blessing it is to sing with the congregation this morning. That's a bit different for me. And I just want to thank Scott and Liesl and Josie for leading us so well in our worship this morning. But truly, it is a joy to stand here with you and to open up the word of God together. You know, just like we sang in the hymn, it's his word that our hope is secured in, isn't it? So what a joy it is to dive into it this morning. Well, if you would, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 11, the book of Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. And I've titled this sermon, Come and Find Rest. So turn with me there now, if you will, and we're going to read this. Verse 28, Jesus is speaking. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is a beautiful allegory of the Christian life from a man in unbelief ultimately on his journey after salvation to the celestial city, which is heaven itself. Now, in the very first few pages of this work, we have a vivid illustration of a man that is bowed down. He's in an inner turmoil. He has a lack of peace. And John Bunyan writes this so well. He says, in my dream in this story, he says, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face turned from his own house and in his hand he held a book, and he bore a great burden upon his back. He opened the book, and as he read, he wept, and he trembled, and unable to contain his emotions any longer, he broke out with a mournful cry, what shall I do? He's the perfect picture of a man under strain, with a lack of rest. He knows the burden of sin that rests upon him. And ultimately, he faces the awful expectation of judgment that awaits him. Now, some of you here might be in a similar inner turmoil that Christian here in the story has. Perhaps you have made a profession of faith, but your life looks entirely different. Perhaps you do not have assurance that at the end of time, you will be justified before God by the righteousness of Christ. Are you in turmoil? Do you have a lack of rest here this morning? We long for rest, don't we? We long for it. We live in a world that is broken and tainted by sin and the physical aspect all around us, aren't we? Our bodies break down, the toil and the striving that we have as we labor. But ultimately, and so much more important than that, our sin has affected our very hearts. We haven't begun to even plumb the very depths of our sin. And if we're outside of Christ, we face certain judgment for that. There's no rest in that. There is no peace. There's merely a a desperate hopelessness. Well, Christ has the answer. Praise the Lord that Christ has the answer. And we're going to see here in this text the exhortations of Christ that he gives to needy sinners like you and I as we long for rest And this, as we in search of rest, and these exhortations should help us trust and savor Christ as the source of all true rest. And I want us to dive through this text this morning and look at this. So we're going to look at verse 28. And in verse 28, we are told to come and heed the call. Come, heed the call. Jesus says here in verse 28, he says, come to me. He is the object of the invitation. He begins with an entreaty. It's an exhortation. Here, this word is an implied command. It's an akin to a command. He says, come, come now, come to me. How do we come to Christ? Well, we go from one place or one direction or way of life, a mode of living, and we turn, and now we come to Jesus himself. How do you come? How do you come to Christ? How do you answer this call? Well, it's synonymous with belief. We believe in him. We believe that he is who he says he is. That he is Jesus, the son of God, that came, died on a cross to save those he chose to save from their sins. That all who might believe and trust in him would have his righteousness. That we believe him and what he says about us, don't we? That we are needy sinners. That we can't do it on our own. That even the smallest sin that we see puts us at an irreparable drift between ourselves and God. And Christ says, come to me. He calls for an action on our part. Now, this in the light of context might be surprising. If we just look at the preceding verses, Jesus has just denounced unrepentant cities. He's performed miracles in them, but they still have refused to repent, even in light of miracles. And then he praises the Father in verse 25 about his will in revealing these things. What are these things? Truths of his kingdom, of his lordship, salvation. And he's revealed these things to sinful infants. But they're hidden from the wise and intelligent, the worldly wise. In verse 27, Jesus makes it clear that man is incapable of knowing God unless the Son, Christ himself, wills to reveal him. Man is entirely dependent on God to know him in any saving way. We've just heard some of this last week too, haven't we? About God's divine providence, his sovereignty, even an election, that he has lovingly chosen some before all time. To be saved in Him. So, what business does Jesus have then with telling us to come? Why does Jesus say come? Jesus is God and He knows God's sovereignty. Well, Christ is the perfect evangelist he's the greatest preacher and in his eyes as he says there is no contradiction here yes god is sovereign but man has a responsibility by the will of god to come you have a responsibility to come and to heed the call and christ says come some cry out so much against biblical doctrines of election and predestination, and they turn away from the Lord, that their ears are then closed to that clear, that crystal clear call that Jesus makes to come. Will you come to me? He is the perfect, spotless, righteous lamb, and he says to come. God is sovereign over all these things, but again, man is responsible to act. You know, Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher from the 1800s, describes this apparent paradox in our finite minds. He talks about God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty over our salvation, and man's responsibility as two parallel train tracks that run along side by side. And we don't see where they meet, but both are contained in the words of Scripture. And Jesus is not talking about sovereignty. He merely is telling you to come. Are you ready to come to Christ? And look at the urgency here. Jesus doesn't say, well, come when you're ready. He doesn't say when you've had a chance to live a life and engage in all the sin you want, and when you're ready to settle down, then come. Do not tarry is what he's saying. You come now. He doesn't say clean up your life, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and reform your life so you're in a more presentable position before you come to me. He says, no, he says, come now. He doesn't say adopt a set of biblical principles that will help bless your life and make you look good in front of others. He doesn't say adopt a religious system. No, he says, come to me, the person of Jesus Christ. Believe in me. What a personal invitation from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just as he spoke it here in his word a thousand years ago, now he speaks it to us again through his word now, doesn't he? And if you're listening, and if you have not come to Christ, he is telling you to come to him. Believe in him. Have you come to him? Will you come to him? That is the question of the day. Will you come to Christ? There's a great sense of urgency here. But notice now this call. It's universal. He says, come to me all of every nation, tribe, and tongue, no matter what background. No matter what education, no matter whether you're old or young, he says, all come to me. But there is a condition that already exists. There's a qualification, isn't there? He says, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus in his divine sovereignty knows that only those who meet this condition, only those that are weary and heavy laden will indeed come to him. Now, what does it mean to be weary and heavy laden? I think most of us are pretty well versed with tiredness and fatigue, don't we? We live in a sin-wrought world, and we all feel this general fatigue. Some of us, if you work a 40- to 50- to 60-hour work week, you are pretty well versed with a sense of monotony and tiredness. The mothers that look after their children probably work a a 200-hour work week, right? You know and you understand what fatigue is. There is a sense of weariness, but this goes so much deeper than that. He's talking about those who are wearied by sin. They have striven and toiled and worked and labored to pull themselves up, to be presentable, to use their own works to somehow be right before God. And they are failing miserably. They are weary. It's an internal struggle, an agonizing weariness to the very point of exhaustion. They want to be right with God, but they cannot. They look to anywhere else outside of Christ. They are weary, and they struggle, and they toil. This is a great weariness. But not only are they weary, it says they are heavy laden. You know, if you think back on that picture of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and Many of us have seen that picture before, but what does he have on his back but a great burden that wears and ties him down? And on his journey, this burden hinders him. With each step that he takes, it only requires more exertion because that weight does not subside. It only grows with time. The weight of his sin is heavy upon him. There's a weight of sin not only on his conscience, there's a weight of sin upon his heart as it's hardened and degraded through sin. He understands that great weight that is upon him. And this is the kind of weight that we have when we come to Christ. You know, when Jesus preached this, the Jews would have known very well what this kind of weight would have felt like. They lived in a a Pharisaical system at that time where the Pharisees put on more and more of man's traditions and man's rules and man's laws to somehow be right with God on their own accord. And guess what? It sounded great. And they strove for it just like the Pharisees. But, oh, they only fell short all the time. And what a burden this was upon their back to somehow obtain God's favor through works righteousness. And what a burden. Matthew 23, verse 4, he says, Jesus speaking of the Pharisees, he says, and they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The Pharisees delighted in coming up with new traditions and things that man could do to be pleasing to God. But they were powerless to help them. They were powerless to lift that off of their back. And they had to walk that walk with that burden on their own. The Jews would have known very well what it meant to be heavy laden. But what about us now? We live in a different time, don't we? Are are you weary Again, this goes beyond that general fatigue of living life. But are you weary of trying to be right with God by your own works, by a set of rules? Are you weary of chasing sin? Are you in that hamster wheel of sin where you just go and go and you're trying to obtain that next sin in order to somehow achieve satisfaction from it? And when you do obtain it, what happens? There is no satisfaction. You only thirst for more. You are tired. You're tired of being in the hamster wheel and you know you're not in a good place and ultimately you know that you will face wrath because of these sins that are burdened upon you that you've chosen. Are you tired of that? Are you tired of trying to drink water from broken cisterns that hold no water? We scrounge around in the mud and we miss the Glorious ocean that's right next to us. Are we tired of listening to our flesh, the world, and the devil's lives promising satisfaction? But yet again we thirst only for more. John, Jesus says in John 7:37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the fount of all living water. I am the fountain that clear, translucent. Perfect crystal fountain that those who are foul in their sins fly for salvation. Are you weary this morning? If you're not a believer in Christ, I pray that you are. I pray that you are weary of the sin and you're weary of trying on your own to be right with God and living in a frenetic mindset through your life. Oh, I pray that you are weary, as Christ says, because ultimately, All those who are hurting and know their spiritual need are invited to come. Think of David. We know King David, the man after God's own heart. And what does he say in Psalm 38, verse 4? He says, For my iniquities go over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. This is the man after God's own heart. And he knows his need keenly and acutely. He is aware of that. And Jesus is speaking to you if you have that kind of knowledge of your sin and desperation. And he's saying, come to me. Come to me. Now, not all who weep over sin and the effects of sin will come to Christ. There are many that know the effects of sin. We deal with it daily but they're more sorrowful over the consequences of sin rather than that offense that their sin has caused against an eternal holy God. And so they have a sorrow that ultimately just leads to death. It's not a sorrow that leads to true repentance because ultimately it's all about them. And they would hold on to their pride to seek to get themselves out of this hole, out of this pit that they're in by their own actions or by a system that they can follow. And they neglect and they turn away from a clear call of Christ to come, come to me. And there are others who will rather be distracted. The world has many flashy things in it, doesn't it? There are many of us that will sadly rather imbibe in the world the flesh of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And we find our satisfaction, our trust in that. In Pilgrim's Progress, in the story as Christian is continuing on his journey to Celestial City. Now, he's already accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he's walking that narrow way. But there, on this journey, he meets a companion by the name of Faithful. And on their way, they come through a town, a town called Vanity. And the town was planted there precisely for the reason to hinder and draw away pilgrims on their path to the Celestial City. And they have to go through this town, and it says it's full of all the fairs of the world, right? And some are good, like honors and promotions and land, things that are good and okay in and of themselves. But there's the temptation to put all our trust and hope in that. And then there are things that are outright sinful, lust of the flesh, adulteries, greed, covetousness. And what do Christian and faithful do? But they plug their ears as they walk through because they will not be hindered on their path, though the residents of this town will try and try again to draw them away. We live this each and every day, don't we? We live in in some way in a town of vanity every day of our lives, and it's always trying to draw us away from the truth. And those that are distracted will turn away, and they will not heed the call to come. They will not come to Christ. John Calvin states it so well I think he says "Let us let us therefore bid adieu to all who entangled by the snares of Satan either are persuaded that they possess a righteousness out of Christ or imagine that they are happy in this world are you happy in this world is this where your satisfaction lies perhaps you're listening to this this morning and you don't think much of Christ because you take all your delight in the world and what the world has to offer And I pray that your eyes may be open to the state of sin, that you would be one of those who are weary and heavy laden and would heed the call and come to Christ. That is the pride of life, that many do not see their need for Christ. You know, it's not those that strut and boast in self-sufficiency that say, I will come to Christ because that's the best decision I've made, like a financial investment, a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not the attitude that comes to Christ. It's an attitude of weariness and heavy ladenness who crawl to Christ in desperation because we can't do it on our own and we're at the end of ourselves and we must turn to Him and to His gracious invitation. You see an example of this with a prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? He shamefully took the wealth of his father, right? His inheritance basically by wishing his father was dead, he took it all and went and spent it all in a sinful lifestyle. And once he had squandered it all, and there he's starving and feeding on food that was meant for pigs, that he comes to his senses by the grace of God, and he says, what have I done? What must I do? Just like Pilgrim in the story, what must I do? And he says, surely it'd be better for me to run back to my father, to be one of his hired hands because of the sin that I have committed. And we know the story, right? He runs back to his father. And what does his father do? But welcomes him in open arms. Come to me, son. And rather than just a hired man, he adopts him. He takes him right in his rightful place as a a child of the family. That's the kind of attitude that we come when we're heavy or weary, excuse me, and heavy laden. It's one of desperation. It's one of humility, not of pride, but of looking to Christ for everything because in us we have nothing. And what does Christ offer when we come? He says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It's the offer of the invitation. Rest, sweet rest that we long for. And Christ is the source of the gift. He's the benefactor. You know what's interesting? He doesn't say, I will pay you rest. You will earn rest by doing such a great job in coming to me. He says, I will give you rest. That's his promise to those that come. It's entirely a gift of grace to those. A gift of rest. Now we talk about rest, and rest is such a rich word. What does that entail for us when we come to Christ? Well, here the believer ceases all efforts to earn salvation by his own merits. We put away that striving on our own accord. There's a freedom from the cares, anxieties, burdens that steal true lasting joy from us. Those burdens that would only steal our joy, now we can view them in the light of who we have come to. And the believer has the sweet assurance of an eternal settled rest in heaven. You know that when you come to Christ and you embrace him in his arms, that he will not let you go ever. As Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When we have come to him, there's no slipping away. When we have truly come to him, he holds us forever. What a sweet assurance that a believer has. No longer do we struggle with that restlessness, with that gift of rest that he gives us. And it's not partial rest, is it? He says, I will give you rest now when you come to me. No matter what extent or degree our life of sin has looked like, no matter our age, whether young or old, when we come to him, he will give us rest. So will you heed that call? This is the first exhortation that Jesus gives to us. Come, heed the call. Come to me. Now we look at verse 29 and 30. And we're going to see his next set of exhortation here that we take his yoke and learn. We take his yoke and learn. So we've come to him and he's given us rest. And now he says to take his yoke. And this word for take again is akin to a command. He is commanding, he's exhorting us to take action, to take the yoke of Christ upon us. And this yoke is a picture of submission. And we might have to stop, and and again, we might confront a paradox here. Jesus just said he'd give us rest, and now he's talking about a yoke. A yoke was a wooden object or a tool that was placed on a a team of animals, and that way the the driver could guide these animals into the productive labor that he had for them. They were moved and, and swayed by this yoke where he could guide them. So when we take Christ's yoke, we take his commands. You know, Christ has commands for us. As believers, we are to do certain things. We are to obey Jesus because we love him, because we've come to him. Our life is going to look different. We are going to follow the word because our heart has been changed and because we love that because it comes from our Savior. We don't have a carefree, easy life as Christians, do we? And anyone who's been a believer for any amount of time knows that's the truth. We have a yoke upon us. And Jesus says, take my yoke. But as we're going to see here in a little bit, oh, this yoke is so different from the yoke that we are previously accustomed to, the yoke of our flesh, the bondage of flesh, of the world of sin and of the devil. When we come to Christ, we submit to him. We submit to his lordship in our life because that's part of coming to Jesus. You know, there's a fallacious view out there of a a carnal Christian, or it's sometimes called non-lordship salvation, where someone believes that they can believe in Jesus, and they say, I believe in Jesus and all that he's done. But they live a life completely void of holiness. They live a life completely outside of the scriptures. They pursue a lifestyle of sin, but yet they say, well, I believe in Jesus this verse makes that so emphatically clear, doesn't it? That you cannot take Christ's joke. You cannot come to him and live a life completely devoid of his commands, nor will we even desire to do so. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We don't do this in order to please Christ. We do this because he is pleased with us because we love him and our heart has been changed. Do you love his commandments? Perhaps you're hearing this, or do you find them burdensome? Perhaps by very, just hearing the word commands of Christ, maybe you have a sinking feeling. Maybe there's a, a strong sense of dread. But 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commands are not burdensome. Jesus' yoke is not burdensome, unlike the yoke of sin in our flesh that we imbibed in. Colossians 1.1 says, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. We had an old master, didn't we? And that master was sin. We are always under a master. God has created you to be a servant. And the question is, is your master the flesh and sin that ultimately will drive you to eternal wrath and condemnation, or is your new master Jesus himself? And we take his yoke, and his way, as we're going to see, is only good and profitable for our souls. You have a master. Which one is it? And he says, and learn from me. We take his yoke, and now we learn from him. For he says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Learn from me. Again, a command. So we take his yoke, and now he commands us to learn from him. And this idea, this, the, the word here carries the idea of discipleship. It's like an ongoing whole life process to learn from someone as a teacher. He's our Lord, our master. He is also our teacher. We take his yoke, and he guides us. John 13, verse 13 reads, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also Ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. We're called to learn from Christ. How do we learn from Him? We have this, don't we? We have the Word of God. When we come to Him and we take His yoke, we read His Word because we desire to learn from Jesus Himself. In fact, this is a mark of someone who has truly come to Christ is that they have a newfound love for the word, a love that's been implanted by the Spirit. Their heart has been regenerated. And my question to you is, do you love the word? Do you desire to know more of him and to learn from him? He says, learn from me. Now, why do we take his yoke and why do we learn from him? He says he'd give us rest. And now he's talking about a yoke and and learning from him. And now there's a relationship with these next words, a a causal relationship. He says, for you will learn from me because, why do you do it? Because I am gentle and humble in heart. What a far cry away of the master we had before. He is gentle and humble in heart. This characteristic of Jesus, this word gentle or meek or lowly, as found in Matthew 5.5, 5, can, can mean a freedom from pretension. It's a, a freedom from harshness. He cares for his children. Oh, the gentleness of Christ. Dane Ortland writes this so well. He says, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. What a difference from the works righteousness system that you may have striven for. That's a, that's a pointed finger all the time. But Jesus is open arms and he's giving an invitation and he's welcoming us to come to him. We see such a, a beautiful example of his gentleness in Mark chapter 10. You remember when the people were bringing children to Jesus and the disciples were rebuking them. Don't bother the teacher with these little children. And what does Jesus do? He's indignant. He says, hold on now. No, permit them to come to me. For the kingdom of heaven is such as these. And Jesus holds children in his arms. Here is the God-man. And then we see the next characteristic. Not only is he gentle, but he's humble in heart. And when it talks about his heart, it's talking about the very core of who Jesus is, his heart. When we think of heart, we can think medically of that beating organ that we have that keeps us going, right? But here, in the biblical understanding of it, this is the very base of a person, of who this person is. And Jesus is defining himself as humble in heart or lowly in heart. We have a a beautiful portrait of accessibility. Again, I I love the way Ortland, Dane Ortland, writes about this, and he says, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Think on Jesus. In Revelation 19, this is the same Jesus who comes back in judgment with a sword and his glorious white robes are dipped and dripping in the blood of his enemies. He's a conquering hero. But this is also the Jesus that rides into Jerusalem. On the mere back of a donkey. When he could ride on a stallion fit for a king. This is Jesus who on the cross in terrible, agonizing death throes and pain. He looks out at the crowd and sees his mother. A weak, vulnerable woman. And he gives his beloved disciple John charge over her. And he says, take care of her. He says, woman, behold, your son. And John takes her into his home that day, even while on the cross suffering immense agony. Jesus is caring for others. He's always putting others above himself. That is Jesus Christ. That is the one that we come to who's gentle and humble in heart. That is why we desire to take his yoke upon us. That is why we desire to learn from him, because he is this Christ that welcomes us in open arms. This is the Jesus who presents himself so clearly in this way. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 says, Paul writes about Christ and his incarnation. And he says, Although existing in the form of God did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. He left his resplendent glory to come and live, and touch, and work with, and cry with, and weep with, and pray with, and heal people like you and me, fallen, broken people tainted by sin. This is the Jesus that took on the form of his creation. This is Jesus who upholds all things by the might of his power, and yet he would take our form and die for those who believe in him. That is the Christ that we come to, and it states here so clearly that this is his character. So we come to him because of this, and it says, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. And Jesus here is actually quoting the prophet Jeremiah. And if you turn with me to Jeremiah 6, verse 16, we can see exactly where Jesus is quoting from at that time. Now the Israelites are being besieged currently. They're under the judgment of God because they've rejected him and they've rejected the good path that he's placed before them. It says in verse 16, thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. When we come to Christ, he gives us that opportunity to walk in that way that is good for our souls and we will find rest. And you notice the difference here. In the, in verse 28, we saw how Jesus would give us rest and that's complete. He gives it to us immediately when we come to him. But now there's an aspect of experience. There's an experiential side of finding rest. When we take his yoke upon us, when we submit to his word, when we submit to his word in all areas of our life, when we're learning from the master teacher, we find rest in increasing abundance throughout life, don't we? We know we are not perfect when we come to Christ. We still deal with remaining sin. And as we're being sanctified, we learn more and more of what that peace that surpasses all understanding is about, and it's only in Christ. Mature saints can certainly attest to this. If you've lived a life of faithful Christian service, of, of trust in the Lord, oh, can you not see how your peace has grown? How you, how, can you not see how your rest has grown, that sweet assurance that you have because of walking with him? You will find rest for your souls. We walk the good way. And why do we do this? How do we find rest? Why do we find rest when we have a yoke placed? Because here in verse 30, he says, For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. There is a yoke, and every Christian can attest to that. There is a burden that we have as believers, don't we? There are some of us who are struggling with multiple illnesses. There are some that struggle with the loss of a child. Others are dealing with a sin struggle, right? And we face and we fight this through the grace of God on our behalf. But life isn't easy, nor is it meant to be. But yet, he says, my yoke is is light. Why is his yoke light? Well, think of a way a yoke is constructed. It was usually always in a pair. It's in a team. There's one oxen with his neck in one side and the other, there's another. They pull together. Jesus is here with us every step of the way. We take his yoke. We pull alongside him. He is with us. We don't go through life alone. When we come to him, he's there through every step of our journey. As we make our own way to the celestial city where we can be with him forever. Hebrews 12 talks about for every believer, we have a path that is set before us. You have an individual race that is set before you. And in that race, there are trials and difficulties and tribulations. But guess what? Jesus is there with you every step of the way. We do not pull alone, but we pull with Christ. And this is why his yoke is light. That's why his yoke is easy. Because he pulls along with us. You know, as we pull along with Christ and he's there with us every step of the way, this word for easy is also better understood as good or profitable. This is the good way. This is the way that is good for our souls, that as we pursue it along with Christ, we look forward to eternal rest with him. Unlike the broad way that only leads to destruction that we were on before, isn't it? That only brought us further and further into our own sin. Awaiting that condemnation that was against us always. But this way is good. And it's beneficial. Unlike the fruitless drudgery of a life of sin. His work is good. His labor is good. And he says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. There is a burden. But his burden is light is light. And this idea of light is in the same way when Paul talks about our momentary afflictions in Christ being light. Even all the things that happen to us, the circumstances that God sovereignly and providentially allows in our life are light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So too is our burden light in this life. And that is quite a shocking statement because some of us have very difficult circumstances in our life. What a peace is that that truly when we're trusting in Christ those circumstances are indeed light we can view them with that proper perspective There is a burden but oh it is so light because Christ pulls along with us throughout our earthly sojourn When we look at the end of the great commission in Matthew 28 What does he say at the very last words of Matthew? And I just love those so much. And all of us do. We hear Christ's words to us and he says in lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. You are not alone. He pulls alongside with us. So will you come and heed the call? Will you take his yoke and learn? Are you in a period of restless, impatience, having no peace? Well, here's Christ's answer. Answer him. Come to him now, today. Today is the day of salvation. Oh, I pray that if you're struggling in sin, that you will heed this call and come to him. Don't tarry. The song that we're about to sing says, if you tarry, you may never come at all. Don't believe the lie that you have all the time in the world to come to Christ. This might be the very day, the very moment, the very hour that through his word he's calling upon you to come to him. So won't you come and believe in him and turn to Christ for his salvation, for his light yoke? And I pray that you would. Now this is a call to those who have not come. But what of us who have come to Christ? What of us who can remember when we came to him and he embraced us in his arms? And we have that sweet assurance of an eternal rest. Remember who it is that you've come to. Remember the person of Christ. Some of us have come to him, but we still struggle with the sense of guilt of sin. This was John Bunyan's story. In Pilgrim Progress, it's almost like an autobiography. He put his faith in Christ, but he still struggled and lacked assurance of his salvation because of the sin of his past life. And when we see in the story, Christian, this pilgrim is on his way and he has trusted in Christ, but yet the burden still remains for a time. And it's only when he kneels at the foot of the cross, when he thinks on Jesus, that that burden falls away. So think on him. If you lack assurance, if you've come to him, think on Jesus and what he promises to you. For every one look we look at ourselves, make ten to Christ because of who he is and what he's done for us. That is the comfort and the truth as believers that we can never stop talking about. We always have to talk about the gospel. We must hear about it every day because our delight is in it because of what he's done for us. And I pray that we would tell others, just as Jesus has done, he tells them to come to him. Now you tell others to come to him because he is the good way. Come to him and heed the call. Place your faith and trust in Jesus and take that light, easy yoke, that light burden. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this clear call that you make to needy sinners like us who are desperate and have no resources in ourselves to save ourselves, to deal with the sin that so weighs upon us. And yet you say, come. Come to me and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray if there are any of those that have not come, Lord, that you'd so work on their heart that they will respond to that gospel call. And for those that are in Christ, that you would comfort them again with the truth of your word, with the truth of the gospel, with the truth of who Christ is. And we just ask this in your name. Amen.